0: Good morning. Thank you all for coming. My name is Caitlin Lutz. I am here from the Office of the Alumni Association. This is the third lecture in our Fall Football Lecture Series. Today we're going to be hearing from Professor Miguel Centeno regarding networks and globalization. One thing I do want to remind you, thank you very much, I just heard that noise, is to have everybody please turn off their cell phones before we get started today. Miguel Angel Centeno received his BA in History in 1980 his MBA in 1987, and his Ph.D. in sociology in 1990, all from Yale University. He is pro- <laughs> we won't hold it against him. <laughs> he is professor of sociology, master of Wilson College, and director of the Princeton Institute for International and Regional Affairs. He is the author of Mexico in the 1990s, published in 1991, Democracy Within Region, Technocratic, Revolution in Mexico, second edition, published in 1997, Blood and Debt, War and Statement Making in Latin America, published in 2002, and the editor of Toward a New Cuba, published in 1997, The Politics of Expertise in Latin America, published in 1997, The Other Mirror, Grand Theory and Latin America, published in 2000, and Mapping the Global Web, published in 2001. He is currently working on two book projects, The Historical Atlas of Globalization and The Triumph and Dilemmas of Liberalism. He has also written and produced a six-hour CD-ROM version of his course on the Western Way of War. He serves as an editor for several journals, including World Politics. He has received grants from the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation, the National Science Foundation, and the Endowment for the Humanities, the Woodrow Wilson Foundation and has been a Fulbright scholar in Russia and Mexico. In 1997, he was awarded the Presidential Teaching Prize at Princeton University. In 2000, he founded the Princeton University Preparatory Program, which provides intensive supplemental training for lower income students in three local high schools. He is married and has two children. Please join me in welcoming Professor Miguel Centeno.
1: Uh, good morning Let's see if i can push that away Oh, now i'm breaking the equipment um, thank you all for coming it is have you ever seen a more beautiful fall morning uh... and you may be wondering about some ambivalence i have about the result today of the football game uh... let me assure you that between making uh... shirley tillman happy and rick levin happy i'd much rather make shirley tillman happy uh... Moreover, my children are really looking forward to a bonfire, so I guess I have to root for your side um, today. What I'm going to do today is talk a little bit about an ongoing project. Um, The somewhat not elegant name is Growing Knowledge About Globalization, and what it is is a project with several colleagues where we are trying to construct a database, an archive, a foundation with which we can get better information and better analysis about globalization so let me tell you, you're not going to get a full, you are not, in a sense you're not going to get a closed narrative today I'm not going to tell you we were looking for X, we found Y and this is what it means what I'm going to do is to give you a little bit of an insight into what an ongoing scientific project looks like and some of the things that we're doing with it so let me just start by no. Let me just start by learning how to do this. <laughs> now, where There you go. Okay, so who are we? We are a, a cross-national, multi-institutional collaboration. Uh, there's a bunch of people at the University of Washington. There's a bunch of people at Technical University of uh, Sydney in Australia. There is a group in uh, Mexico City that's working with us. And what we're trying to do is to create a database that is a place where you can just go find any kind of information that you might want about globalization. A particular kind of information, which I'll talk a little bit about in a second, it's going to be web-based, it's going to be open access, what this is going to allow is for wealthy universities or wealthy research groups like ours to process this data, make it available for anybody across the world that wants to explore this information. We're going to do it by making that data available, by publishing research, uh, by descriptive publications, with teaching tools, and we're hoping it's going to take about five years, from 2005 to about 2010. It was re- it's been about five years in, in, in the making on this stage, now we're ready to, 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 to roll it out. Uh, the projects are going to include again reference volumes, conferences, case studies, a website, statistical and data products, And what I'm going to talk to you today is the first phase of it, which is about trade. It's the most obvious aspect of globalization and the one for which data is most easily accessible. So that's where we're beginning. The next stage is going to be about tracking people, migration, tourism, travel, etc. Then we're going to look at following the money, which is uh, capital flows, remittances, etc. Transmitting culture, which is exports and imports of television programs, movies, translations of books, etc and finally surveying institutions, looking at the governance structures behind uh, globalization. Um, Now let me give you a little bit of idea of what we mean by globalization. Here's one definition which is pretty good. Uh, Globalization is a process. Globalization is not a destination. Okay? It's not a, a, a place that we're going. It is a process by which the world is globalizing. And what does that mean? It means that the world is becoming more interdependent We need each other for many more things, we exchange more things with each other, we call each other more often, we travel to each other more often, and we're doing it in incredibly quick ways, all right? And we're doing this across uh, economic, political, and social units. That is, we're, we're exchanging stuff, we're paying for that stuff, we're moving things, we're reading each other's work, and just to get an image of globalization, imagine 10 years ago. This is the best way I've always explained it to the students, although they can't remember 10 years ago. Um, Remember when friends would go to Europe, for example, and they would say, can I bring you anything back? And there were all sorts of products that were only available in Europe. Now that would be a ridiculous question. Any Italian chocolate, a French perfume, some English shortbread is available at the Princeton Shopping Center. That is just one sort of minute v- version of the globalization and imagine that across all sorts of different spheres across the entire globe and constantly again accelerating and, 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 and expanding. And let me give you a couple of results of this. One version of it is technology. People have said that technology drives us. And let just to give you a couple of illustrations. This is the number of internet users and of course if we take it to 2004 it will keep going up this way from 1980. This is TV ownership, so you can see more and more and more people are plugged into the box through which we communicate uh, globally. And airline passengers. Traveling on an airline is now part of part of the identity of being a global, even lower middle class person. Uh, you can travel. You can get on a plane. You can actually cross an ocean uh, relatively easy. So there's a lot of technology associated with it. It's open borders. Here, uh, my colleagues and I just sort of fitted on the curve. The amount of trade as a percentage of the economy in the world, and it is actually increasing close to 100%. All right, if we, take the, if we take the average of what each country trades as opposed to what it makes, some countries are actually getting to the point that they trade exactly what they make, at least in, in, in aggregate terms. So more and more and more, not only are we making more stuff, but we're trading it to each other uh, much more. Uh, The global distribution of wealth. What has this done to wealth? Well, if you take a look at this blue line right here, this is the OECD countries, basically the rich countries, the 30 countries uh, in the OECD. This is 1960. This is 2000. In those years, in constant dollars, the per capita income of these countries has doubled and half again. It's gone from about 10,000 to 25,000. So this period of globalization, these 40 years of globalization in these countries have been associated with incredible advances in wealth. In the space of two generations, we have become much richer. If you take a look at the Asian tigers in China, they have gone through a similar experience. The absolute numbers are less. That's why they're actually mapped on this axis okay but it's the same kind of wealth generation that we're seeing in the rich for much of the world though note that the wealth generation has been flat so one of the things we have to understand about globalization is that it is associated with this massive amount of of wealth for some and for other countries they have not witnessed that advance of wealth and it's important to keep in mind when we're trying to figure out the international politics of globalization uh, inequality inside countries the evidence is pretty clear that inequality has increased within countries because of globalization not because globalization is bad or it's evil or you've got some dirty capitalists up there going <laughs> but simply because globalization prizes and gives prim- primacy to education and training therefore those with education and training in particular things are going to get paid more than those without And that gap is going to increase. You also see evidence of uh, inequality between countries increasing. That is, the distance between how the rich countries live and how the poor countries live has also expanded. So globalization is a lot more technology, a lot more wealth, but arguably some more inequality. And that has all sorts of political ramifications. It also has led to a great deal more democracy over the last 30 years. We use Banks Poly Index, which is basically just an index which takes into account military and power, press freedoms, human rights violations, these kinds of things, and creates a democracy index. <laughs> well, there is no doubt that globalization has brought about the democratization of the world. No longer does any leader, perhaps other than Fidel Castro or Kim Il sung, uh, talk about a, a or Kim Jong il, Uh, talk about an alternative to democracy. Everyone at least has accepted the rhetoric of democracy and increasingly the reality of democracy. So the globalized world is also more democratic. And globalization is everywhere. Everywhere you turn, you see an article about it. Okay? We just mapped the number of articles that mention globalization in mass media, which is this dark blue, and scholarly pieces. And you see there's a steady increase throughout the 90s, Okay, Y2K brings a little boom, but not that much of a down, and it's going back up again. We've calculated there's 15,000 scholarly articles on globalization. All right? So we've got all this wealth, we've got possible inequality, we've got all this democracy, we've got all this technology, we've got all these articles, and we know absolutely nothing about globalization. It has become a completely vacuous term. We're all globalized. Well, thank you. (laughs) All right? Globalization is good. Globalization is bad. We have this incredible social revolution going on that is affecting all parts of the world, that is affecting all aspects of our life, and we really don't understand it. We still believe that globalization is a black box. Never has more theory been generated by so few facts. everybody's got a theory about globalization and it's usually supported by an anecdote and I, I'm always picking on Thomas Friedman I'm just jealous um, you know instead of Thomas Thomas Friedman-esque uh, 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 anecdotes I met a Bengali software engineer on a Swiss air flight eating sushi while going to Barcelona therefore the world is globalized well okay you know what does that mean so we've got a lot of theories There's entrenched theoretical and public policy debates. Is it good or is it bad? That is one of the silliest questions that have been asked. Is gravity good? Well, it is if I want to stay on the stage. Is it bad? Yes, it is if I'm falling off a tree. It all sort of depends on where you stand. And the same thing with globalization. It has benefited some. It has perhaps hurt others. It's excluded some. It's welcomed others. And the question is not to go, it's a good thing or it's a bad thing, but to start finding out under what conditions it's good, whom does it affect, how does it affect them, how do they react to that. And the empirical evidence, again, there has not been enough generation of empirical evidence. The consequences of this is we don't understand the underlying structures of globalization. We know that it does these things, but what's going on underneath? We know the symptoms. What is the disease or what is the condition? What is the physiology of globalization? We don't understand interaction dynamics. That is, we know we're trading more, we know we're sending each other more money, we know we're traveling much more. How do these interact? How does tourism affect investment? How does telephone communication affect capital flows? How does trade end up shaping cultural dynamics? What is the causal order of these? We don't know that. We have a failure to foresee unintended consequences, crises, normal accidents, systemic malfunctions. That is, as you create this incredibly elaborate, dynamic, tightly wound system, if any part of it goes wrong in an unexpected way, what are its consequences? Can we float down the the, the dynamic structure of globalization and go, boy, if we get an airline strike over here, these are going to be the consequences for the widget industry. Okay, very simple. We don't know these because we don't have a copy, we don't have an image in a sense of that physiology. So, what we want to do is to describe the contents of that black box. And the way we do it is by calling them transactions. We say globalization is nothing more but billions upon billions of transactions between billions upon billions of people. And anything can be a transaction. You get on a flight and you go to Zurich. That's a transaction. You get off in Zurich and you buy something. That's a transaction. You make a MasterCard, uh, you pay with a MasterCard, which means that your bank has to communicate with a bank in Zurich electronically. You ship a little, you send a little postcard from Zurich back to New York. That's a transaction. All of these you call your children. That's a transaction. And what we want to do is to map these transactions, first to gather them. And the actors, again, can be people, cities, countries, organizations. It can be measured as trade, capital transfers, treaties, travel, collaborations, anything. We will count anything, all right? And we want to take these transactions and create this data. And the data is basically a record of all transnational transactions, and it is huge. I mean, essentially, if you think about it, the most common unit is a country to a country. And we do that simply because that's the way the data is reported. So what does Andorra send, call, whatever to France? So if you can imagine a 200 by 200 matrix, okay, where each little box is what the country in this row sent to the country in this column. And we have thousands of these things for years. Mailing, telephone, trade, et cetera. You've got all these boxes, and you can be a little bit like a sort of a Scrooge miser and go, I have all the data, but it doesn't do you very much good. <laughs> unless you can do something with it. And what we do with it is network analysis. And you can take a network analysis, and you can reveal the structure behind globalization. And all of you, this sounds very fancy, you know, and I should put on my serious professor voice, network analysis. Okay? <laughs> you are all network analysts. Anyone who has ever gone through that social hell called middle school, okay, is a network analyst. Somewhere in sixth or seventh grade, you walked into a cafeteria and you mapped out the entire structure of the school. Here are these guys, here are these guys, this is the cool table, this is the dork table, this is the jock table. These guys go out with these guys, these guys get invited to these parties. And you have this map of your school or of your workplace or of your neighborhood inside you. We want to take that same kind of analysis and apply it to all these transactions. Who calls whom? Who trades with whom? Who owes whom money, if if you will? Now, if we map the pattern of these transaction networks, if we can actually, let's go back to the high school, if we actually can get the phone records of all the kids in that high school over a month period, and I can map that network, I can tell you what the structure of that high school is in 30 seconds. All I need to do is to process that data and it will show me who gets the most calls, who never gets called, who never gets invited to a party, who gets invited to all the parties, and I can translate that and go, these kids are powerful in that high school. These kids are marginalized. You can do the same thing, but just the volume of stuff is much larger on a globalized basis. And what we're doing is we're creating the data set, and we're creating the mechanisms of which it it can be studied. Now, let me show you what these will look like. This is a very simplified version, and and I want to show you because depending on what the network looks like, your images of globalization are going to be very, very different. So this is the universal mode. This is everybody's connected to everybody else. There are no asymmetries. This is the idyllic high school. Everybody's friends with everyone else. No one's on top, no one's on the bottom. This is globalization as sometimes portrayed, yes, I'll pick on them again, by Thomas Friedman. Okay? Hey, everybody can sell stuff to one another. It's okay. There are no inequalities here. This model is probably closer again to an American high school. It's got cliques. No, everybody doesn't trade with everyone else. These guys trade with these guys. These guys over here, and these guys over here. So, if you want, this is NAFTA, this is the EU, and this is ASEAN. And you don't really have globalization. What you have is the creation of three superclicks, or four, or five, or six, or whatever it might be. And here is a simplified model of a hegemonic or an empire. One person in the middle. Everybody calls that person, or everybody wants piece of that country, but these guys are not connected to one another. All right, so we'll see which one of these the real network actually looks like. Um, Let me just skip a little bit to this. And this is what it looks like. Um, This is a network map of the entire world trade in 1980. Now, it's unreadable, as it is, but let me tell you a little bit about how to read these as we go along. These are countries. Each one of these little units here is a country we've arranged them by region okay you could arrange them by languages you can arrange them by income levels you can arrange them by anything we simply arrange them here by geography this zone in the middle the whole of the big donut is all the exchanges that go on between each country and every other country outside of its region and basically what you see is this mass, a solid bit of orange we'll get clear in a little bit And these curves outside are how much trade goes on inside this region. So it's a really simplified way of showing you what the connections are. Here is the connection inside the groups. And again, we can define the groups any which way we want. Here are the connections outside the group. So that's just the representation of it. And we have to make decisions about what counts as a country and what doesn't. So for example, you take uh, the EU. Should we treat the EU as a country? Should we treat Europe as a country? Or do we treat it as a single unit? We decided to do is we treat the members of the EU as a single country. So trade between Germany and France, on this analysis, this particular version, you won't see it. We treat that almost as domestic trade, simply because it, you have this strange animal in the EU of is trade there domestic or international, For clarity's sake, we turn those 12 countries basically into one. All right. And what do you get? You get something that looks a little bit like this. Now let me show you what is going on. This is in 1980. Okay? This is all commodities, every single thing that's traded in the world. And what we've done is we said, let's not look at really big, a a little trade. Let's not look at how much Guatemala sends to Ecuador. All right, let's set up a threshold. So it's really only the links that are above this threshold. Our threshold is 0.1% of total trade. So we're looking, if you will, hypothetically, for the top 1,000 links, the ones that really account for the heavy-duty global trade. And here we have it mapped. And in here is basically a map of social or economic power in 1980. Notice uh, many people are not here. That it's really only among a bunch of certain actors don't worry about lots of others here this is the inner core a couple of other things notice that everybody in a sense wants to deal with the United States that the United States is in a sense at the center of a global network alright that even you know people have dealings with each other but it's the United States euro has something like that but only the united states serves as a repository from africa from asia and from europe okay notice for example this is 1980 this is at the end of jimmy carter's term this is the nadir of american power this is the rise of the soviet union if you looked at trade compare this position to this one this is the former ussr in 1980 that no matter how many nukes how many submarines, in terms of its trade power, even at the moment of the weakest in the United States, let's say, the United States is the central power in the world is already obvious, that the world is much more unipolar than we might have have considered. Now let's look how it changes, and I'm going to skip 1990 and just show you 2001. Couple things to notice. One is the entry of Asia, where before you had one or two countries, now you have Asia as a major center, and they're trading with each other the disappearance of Africa Africa has essentially disappeared as an economic actor from the global stage and the increasing centrality of the United States again all roads I mean you have this important nexus here this is not to deny but remember this is 12 countries alright one of the reasons we did this is we didn't want to over accentuate American centrality but if you actually map this the euro 12 is 12 countries the centrality of the US would even be more accentuated because it would have no, any, anything close to its, its, its capacity. This is the kind of thing we're trying to do. In order to show, in order to produce maps that in a sense replicate what the structure of the world is. Let me just give you a few more examples. You can do it by regions. And you can go down, with the trade data, you can go down four levels in SITC codes. What that means is the first code is food, the second code might be fruits and vegetables, the third code is kumquats, and the fourth code is either fresh kumquats or packaged kumquats. I can go down to that level, all right? And we just did it with food here. Now notice this. As a Latin American, let me explain this. Americans always think that the Latin Americans have it out for them. Why do they always call us the empire, et cetera? aside from some historical issues. Look at the structure here, all right? How few Latin American countries actually deal with each other, and they all deal with the US, all right? And the other biggest one is Canada and Mexico. We'll see what NAFTA looks like in in a little bit. So you can do that with it. Uh, Emerging group analysis is the way of picking up clicks. Uh, Oh gosh. Um, so let me go through that. Um, this is another way you can do it. You can map it out onto a Cartesian space. All that means is an XY diagram. Alright? And we're trying to put a map on this. You can imagine a map on this. Okay, here's the Americas, here's Europe, Africa, Asia. Alright? Turns out to be graphically a lot harder than we thought. And, in a sense, this is underplaying the centrality of the U.S. because we made Greenwich Central. If we had made New York Central, all these lines would not be crossing this way, they would just be going around, if you will. So you can see the U.S. gets all this fluff from Europe and also all this fluff from Asia. But one little point, this one's one reason why this is particularly good. Imagine the equator is around here, okay? If you ever wondered why people use the terminology of north and south about the globe, there's a good indication. (laughs) that a large part of the globe is not participating in this at all. I always laugh when I see all these anti-globalization protesters going stay out of the third world. <laughs> they are! Don't worry about it! <sighs> okay? It's not, it's, it's, it's not even a factor <sighs> in terms of these, of these, of these units. Uh, Step link analysis, again, you can, I, I can't show you all this stuff, but I want to show you a couple of examples on how we can use this. So global equality is globalization, making people more unequal or equal. And the way we do this, a couple of ways. We wanted to look at the amount of world trade. So this is 1980. This is 2001. Boy, world trade has gone up. All right? Massive. All right? There's no question about that. Now, then these little bars here, are the percentage of world trade that is accounted for by the big players. And notice that that's gone up. Where in 1980 these big players accounted for about 12 percent of world trade. By 2001 they're accounting for 25 percent. So you've had more stuff being traded but most of the growth has occurred inside a small group. A lot of people A lot of countries have not participated in in this. Uh, Let me just show you. This is the distribution of number of links, that is, number of people that you trade with. And we set the threshold at .01, pretty low. This is the number of links. This is the number of countries. As you can see, most countries have zero, actually, okay, or one. So most countries just trade with one or two other countries in any significant way. And you've got a classic power law distribution. And then there's one country over here that trades in a significant way with 64. Anybody want to (laughs) guess who this is? You've got the Euro 12 over here, and you've got Japan over here. So the distribution, this makes it even more, if you make the threshold even higher, okay, it's even more obvious. Here's the US, here's the Euro 12, here's Japan, here's most people, all right? So, m- most countries are not participating in this. It's a few countries that, that, that are. Um, here's another way of looking at it. We took the top 25% of trade in 1980. That is, you make a cumulative account of all the trade, all right, and when you get to the 25th percentile, the first quarter, if you will, these are the really big comp- links, this is what you get. In 1980, the really big players that accounted for the first 25% of world trade were the Euro 12 and the United States, basically, and Japan. Notice again the centrality of the United States. Saudi Arabia, uh, areas, uh, this is data that we just don't know, unknown destinations. East Asia is basically Japan, South Africa. What a surprise, selling to unknown destinations. Remember, this is 1980 during the sanctions. Okay? now. Take a look at what the world looks like in 2001. It's even more concentrated. And actually, in later graphs, we're moving Mexico over to North America as part of NAFTA. So if the graph would look even more. You basically have three. You have a triangle. You've got NAFTA. You've got Japan. And you've got the Euro 12. And that's really where the action is taking place. And you can increase the cumulative value. This is 50%, even at 50%, this is half of world trade, is accounted for by these guys. And again, the centrality of the United States is pretty obvious, okay? Um, Concentration of world trade. Look, Look at regional effects. This is the Americas in 1980. And again, we saw this a little bit with food, but this is with everything the United States is in the center in 2001 it remains in the center now if we take out NAFTA so we take out the big players and we lower the threshold that's going to count and you see a little bit more interconnections but still you see regional players okay Venezuela is a major player in 1980 and it's going to continue to be because of oil OK, so everybody's got links with Venezuela. Venezuela is the gas station of the continent, OK? Everybody's going there. And you see a little bit of a link between Argentina and Brazil. By 2001, this has become even stronger. But Venezuela is still has this, this, this position. You can find, if you will, you can use this to find regional subgroupings of, of, of connections. What's really amazing, though, is what pers- what the role of NAFTA in this. This is very similar to the first chart that I showed you about percentage of world trade. This is the percentage of trade in the Americas, or so the Western Hemisphere, as a percentage of world trade. The Americas used to be fairly minor player in world trade. In 1980, the Americas um, uh, uh, accounted for relatively small. Over here, it's much larger. Notice, though, that the percentage of that trade that is accounted for by NAFTA, is much higher. This is the trade of the other American countries. This is NAFTA. So the Americas, in terms of world trade, means NAFTA. The other countries, sure, once in a while you get something, but the real player is in NAFTA. Um, The centrality of NAFTA, just to give you an idea, this is why sometimes you can understand why Canadians and Mexicans get a little nervous about NAFTA. This is the percentage of the world of U.S. trade that's accounted for by NAFTA. And it's gone up. It's gone from a little bit over 20 to a little bit over 30. This is Canada and Mexico. 80, more than 80% of Mexico's trade is with NAFTA. So you can imagine why Mexicans go, you know, a little bit of a, you know, if you sneeze, we get pneumonia. All right, so the relationship of the United States between these two players, again, you can explore this. Even more tragic case is in the case of Africa. Here we see the same pattern in Euro 12, okay, we did in the Americans, except the center is the Euro 12. These countries barely communicate with one another. Okay, this is U.S. uh, Euro 12. We kept it on there. It's mostly with Europe. That continues in 2001. Let's do it without Europe and the United States. What we see is, oh, there is communication in Africa. There is trade in Africa at a much lower threshold. But this is this is one of the slides where I want you to just, if you can just keep one image in your mind, because you'll see where this stuff gets really useful. Here's, here's uh, South Africa in 1980. All right, it's basically isolated in the continent. I mean, it's got some connections to. Reunion, uh, Mauritius, and Malawi, OK? But you see it's not a major player. Notice what happens in 2001. This is South Africa. So you can see the development in a sense of a continental centers, of places, if you will, kids becoming more popular, places changing their structural position inside globalization. Africa in general, the disappearance of Africa from trade is really remarkable. In 1980, Africa trade, including trade with the U.S. and Euro 12, accounted for five and a half percent of world trade. By 2001, 1.92. Intra-Africa trade, that is, trade going on inside the continent, accounted for 0.11 in 1980, 0.13 percent. So, Africa is not part of the global model. It's just marginalized completely, right? And we have to understand that. If we're talking about globalization, understand where, if you will, the empty spots are. Where are the spots that are not being connected? Um, Again, just very, very quickly, you can start looking at things. You can use this to just explore basic relationships. I mean, this is a very simple level. This is all commodities, top 75% of value in Middle East, North Africa. Mena. All right? Notice Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is the key player in 1980. Check what happens in 2001. Yeah, you've got Saudi Arabia, but you have the UAE. This is Abu Dhabi. This is Dubai. Right here. So you, you can track the creation again of these new, uh, of these new centers. Asia. The same kind of concentration that we saw in the world we see in Asia. In 1980, these are the big players and basically Japan okay has this relationship with Korea Taiwan China and Indonesia alright by 2001 it's become China Japan and Hong Kong and if we went into 2004 we're processing the data the centrality of China would be even more so Um, again you see this in 1980 top 75 percent Japan is the regional center. By 2001, Japan is still powerful. I mean, let's not dismiss Japan. But you're beginning to see which way it's going to go. China is becoming that center. Europe, same thing. In 1980, Germany being a a, a clear center. But it's, it's got other competing. But clearly, Germany is dominant. By 2001, many more connections, and perhaps the domination of Germany, or the centrality of Germany, is, is, is more apparent. So what are we going to do with all this stuff? What we want to do is to make it available so that we can get away from the great person analysis of globalization. So instead of somebody in some room, in some hall, coming it up with it all, we can create a global mosaic of information. We can make this data available to lots of folks, and we can start, for example, we can characterize those countries by whole different ways, by region, by civilization, by empire, world development indicators. We're going to standardize the data, so it's gravity. This is an economics term, gravity free. That is, that we standardize for uh, um, uh, economy size. So we can actually see who trades with each other independent of how much money they have. Um, We are working on additional transactions. We just finished with tourism. So we have all the data of all the tourists going from every country to every country. We've got air travel, which will allow us to get it down to the level of cities. We've got internet usage, phone calls, migration. And you're going to be able to, you know, the old textbooks, uh, the anatomy textbooks, where you could see the bones and you see the organs and you see the nerves or whatever. You're going to be able to put a map down of trade and put a map of tourism over it or put a map of whatever you want and you can start looking at how these are interconnected and also do so statistically the statistics are available. I just want to show you one version of what that might look like this isn't uh, trade, this is phone calls and what we've done here is instead of treating the countries by regions we put them by income levels alright, these are the rich this is the not so rich this is the poor This is the really poor. And since this is from 1995, these are the ex-socialist economies. Now think back on those different models that I showed you of networks. If you were looking at global power, the rich talk to each other, the poor don't. What do they do? They call the rich. And again, you don't have to have a conspiracy theory. You don't have to go, oh, they're all after us. You simply have to go, how does the flow of influence work in the world? You've got one sector of the world that can communicate with itself, that is dealing with itself. You've got the other, the have-nots, if you will, that we saw in many regions are not part of globalization. They don't communicate with each other. They're merely trying to make friends with the rich. Think about it again as a high school the clique, the cheerleaders and the football team. And here are, you know, if you will, here are the the nerds, the granola's and the goths, okay? Well, I guess they would be the ex-socialists or something like that, okay? And these guys don't talk to one another. They're just trying to impress these guys all they can. Now, you don't have to be a social psychologist to figure out what the patterns of influence and power are in that high school and what we're going to do is we're going to make this interactive so you're actually going to be able to go on the web in about six months we're working on the license fees where you will be able, here's just a prototype it just says trade, but you would be able to choose tourism uh, airlines, migration, whatever then you can choose more specifically all the way down okay, you can get down from trade to crustaceans or fish frozen fillets if you want uh, actually, that's pretty interesting. You should see the flow of where fish go and where fillets go. Uh, it shows you a little bit about the way the world is structured. You can choose countries, and you'll be able to generate any one of these images that you want. Um, we're going to make it as easy as possible, so high school teachers, for example, can use this, college teachers can use this, but also researchers can use this to start testing out theories or, or data mining, exploring what is, is, is out there. Um, A lot of the data is already loaded on here, wwwprincetonedu slash, tilde, I-N-A. Okay? or you can go to my website, and you'll see lots of links to it. So the data is going to be on there. Some of it already is. Interactive production of netmap that's that menu. We've got a conference in March 2006 on structures of trade. Uh, We're hoping to publish the first volume of these, which is essentially, it's a coffee table book of these maps of observing trade that someone can just get in you know in a half hour of going through it you will get a set of images of how world trade is, is organized and then expansion of data and further publications hopefully by 2010 but again if you want to go there or this is the specific site for this project this also will give you you can play in this site quite a bit we've got some charts and things about what globalization looks like um, so if you want to go there and with that I will stop uh, boring you and take some questions. Thank you very much. Um, any questions? Yes, sir. Um. Not not the level so far. The analysis, uh, the question is, I'm sorry, let me repeat the question. The question is whether we have found something uh, that really surprised us. So far at the level of analysis that we've done, not really. Um, It's merely confirmed uh, quite a few impressions in a very, very strong way. Uh, I was surprised by the degree of concentration and the triangular effect. I mean, nobody should be... In some ways, nobody should be surprised that the triangle of East Asia, Europe, and NAFTA exists, the extent to which it exists, and, and, and how clearly it comes through the data was a surprise. Where we're, we're, I think the surprises uh, will come in is when we explore at the second or third level of trade, where we can then start mapping out, you know, how this stuff works from the ground up, from the fish, to the fish cutlet, to the frozen fish cutlet, to the trade, etc. Let me also emphasize that one of the reasons for this project is we're not out. We're not seeking in a sense one outcome or another. This is good old-fashioned positivistic data. We're sending it out there. If it confirms someone's uh, uh, hypotheses, great. If it doesn't, great. We just want to get the data out there so people can can explore a little bit more. Yes, ma'am. well uh, that is obviously it's one of the major products so I don't I don't have it mapped out today Uh, oh yeah oh yeah no that's one of the products we've got we literally have every single commodity so you'll be able to go on this website in about six months and you can put in pharmaceuticals you can put in you know and the pharmaceutical of course goes all the way down to particular and you can see which way it flows you can then this is where it starts getting interesting Um, We will also have a data set available that you can access that has almost any kind of socioeconomic indicator that you might want. And you can either use that in formal statistical analysis and do regressions, whatever, or you can simply use it. this is very powerful. You make these little groups. Let's go back. Okay. You can make these little groups by income. You can make them by... um, child uh, uh, mortality rates. And you can, you know, you can find the ones where the children are safest, where, all the way to where the children are in most danger. And you can map onto that what the pharmaceutical flows will be. I can almost assure you what you'll find is that this sector has no connections at all. <laughs> that essentially what you'll find, and again, I don't, I really do not have a, a what's the expression in English? I'm sorry, um, an axe to grind on this. I think what we're finding more and more, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm often thought of being on the the left uh, on on a lot of debates, well actually what this is showing you is that the worst thing that can happen is not globalization, it's not being globalized, Uh, yes, there are costs associated with globalization, yes, there are all sorts of bad things, if you will, that come with globalization for some, but what you will find is that the correlation between being connected and lots of measures of well being is actually fairly positive. And the question then becomes not keeping globalization out or not. How do you structure a new globalized order so those on this end can have access to the important things that globalization is, is providing? So it's not, oh, this is bad, let's get rid of it. It's, listen, it's not doing some things. What are those things and what can we do about it? Uh, yes, ma'am? Uh, the, question, the question was Have we looked at the inhibitors of globalization and one of the ways, this is why I'm excited about when the whole project is done you'll be able to map these two if you look at governance structures that is who's got diplomatic relations with whom who attends the same treaty meetings uh, where has the president of one place gone as opposed to another and you can track that to to, to these movements so you will be able to find out Oh, having high-tariff walls makes all the difference. Or it's not having airline connections. Um, Let me just follow with this thought for a second. One of the things that really concerns me is that there are parts of the world that are not connected at all. And what concerns me is not just the cost of that non-connection or the benefits of that non-connection, I'll leave that as an open question, but that as globalization proceeds, the infrastructures that we are creating to facilitate globalization are gonna become harder and harder to shift. And if you happen to be out of the game at time T, your ability to jump in the game at time T plus 10 is gonna be very, very difficult, no matter if you have a domestic boom. So in the case of Africa, let us assume that Africa, the African political economy can come back that African political economy can come back from the disasters of the 1980s, 1970s and 1980s. It might be too late because the very structures of globalization might have gone around it and the example I always give is imagine you you used to be a successful diner on Route 66 uh, and then I-80 opened up. Boy, you could open the best French restaurant in the Midwest and if you're 20 miles from I-80, sorry, it, in, in, so in a sense, your present situation of globalization can really help determine what that history is. And we have to be very, very aware of the medium to long-term consequences of the way the infrastructure is built right now. Uh, let me go over here. Uh, yes, ma'am? In the orange? Probably so. I was just wondering, it sounds like you have the entire town of as you have basically with academic duct tape um, uh, which my father in love would love he's a carpenter in Ohio and he thinks everything can be built with duct tape um, we've done it fairly cheaply uh, I mean a lot of it has to do with just people being fanatics uh, whenever I mean I'll just give you one little version of this whenever I come home and I say to my kids hey can I show you something they go oh god dad not another map oh no uh, so a lot of it is just getting fanatical people uh... we are we're now at the stage where we need serious money we've done this basically with love and relatively a p- little amount of cash uh, we're now at the stage to, to take it to the next level uh... we're gonna need not serious cash by physical science standards but some cash and we're constantly on the prowl with foundations uh, what, we're, what we're hoping to do is that we will have a center here and we'll have a center in UW. And the wonderful thing about the web is that once you've got the system set up, you can manage this with, let's say, five people. And you can make the data and the research available to literally tens of thousands. And then I think my, my dream, when I get my Frankenstein moments, is where you can have this global community of people using this data, communicating and saying, look what I found. And what does that mean for this theory? And let's follow this along. Rather than just having social science model, which is very, very uh, individualistic, it's essentially trying to take the natural science model of collaboration and data-centeredness over to globalization. Um, yes, ma'am.: right now? Um, Yeah. Uh, we're using basically the 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 underlying data platform, uh, the question was what is the underlying data platform it's uh, a version of Access um, that then NetMap can read. Uh, Most of the data comes in in Excel and actually we have most of the data on the web in Excel simply because it's very easy to look at but in order to run it it works on um, uh, Access. Um, We're essentially data parasites, let me explain that Uh, we don't produce this data, we don't have the capacity to produce this data we basically have relationships with the UN with a bunch of data providers Uh, uh, so we, 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 we work with them creating and standardizing the data and then we go through the web constantly looking for it and our big job is to standardize it so you can find out, if you go to a bunch of different countries, you can find out migrants into that country. What we do is we gather all those little data points and transfer it into a single matrix that someone can just access and get what the network of migration is. So we use that, we translate it into a standardized Excel and access, and then it goes off to the It depends. It depends on the data. It depends on the data. We we don't have it by month um, because, you know, every single time unit you can just multiply. Uh, What we do is we use key years. If we ever got serious money, yeah, we could do it. My, my other dream, again, my other Frankenstein moment, and I actually hope, and I've talked to a few folks in the Pentagon about this, we should have this as a country. If you think about it as a national security issue, remember Dr. Strangelove with the big board and they used to have the planes flying? Well, if you can imagine, that's, in a sense, what we need. Because we better know, where the container ships are. We better know where the airplane traffic is. We better know where the telephone calls are coming. And an awareness of how this network is being managed is increasingly, especially after 9-11, a national security. Let me just finish up with that. Networks are greatly robust. That is, you can eliminate any part of a network, and the network will survive. Unless you take out the node. And one of the things that's really scary about this is if you start looking at particular industries, that there are central nodes. That if you take out that particular node, that industry stops. And if that industry stops, the next industry stops. And if that one stops, so if you're a smart terrorist, you don't go for the big thing. You go for the little factory outside of Naples that makes the thing, which makes the thing, which makes the thing, which makes the thing. thing. And you can grind it to a halt if you can identify that key node. So to the extent that we become more aware of this, we should. Again, for purely national security reasons. Yes, sir. Oh, I've sure they found some nasty people, not necessarily terrorists, but uh Christmas in Vegas. I mean uh, you know <laughs> Oh yeah, no, anybody's got it right. I mean, believe me, the stuff we're doing... What do you have like in No, no, we don't have anything on individual level. Uh, our data sets are already aggregates. So, but, let me, let me tell you, that the gentleman's point is very well taken. One of the uses for networks is precisely this. The guys who develop networks, who are our Australian partners, uh, they're doing this for kindness and because the director of NetMap is, uh, a, is a very interested scholar. What they do for money, their biggest client, is the National Australian Intelligence Agency. And you probably read about three or four days ago about the 17 guys being arrested, Uh, although they don't tell me. I mean, there's some things they can't tell me without killing me. Uh, I would not be surprised if the NetMap guys did it, because you can take the same principle instead of countries, make it credit card records, airplane records, and hotel registrations, And you can very quickly triangulate and find out, why is everybody calling this guy? (laughs) And you can identify that guy. Now, the constitutional issues of the privacy of that, I, I will stay away from. But it's very powerful stuff. You can use this. All you need is raw data, and you can turn it into a social map. For good or for ill, if you wish. Yes, Right. Yeah, no, we're... we're um, I don't know about it, it's changing. The question is about um, student flows and to what extent this, this has ramifications for further contact. Um, we're not quite sure it's changing because we don't have the data on student flows except through 2002, so we're not quite picking up the 9-11 uh, effect. Let me sort of answer your question by giving you one point. What, one of the amazing parts of the centrality, if you really want to watch centrality, is we we have the data on student flows. You can actually go to the website and see it. And the centrality of the United States as the place to get educated, I mean, it makes any of these pictures I showed you on trade look like nothing. Everybody comes to the United States to get educated. The influence and the power that that gives the United States is incalculable. Um, We basically educate everybody's minister of finance. That is an amazing, amazingly powerful thing, which is why President Tillman, certainly much more powerful than I can in in, in Washington, but also in my own ways, we have been advocating so much for getting rid of the roadblocks to graduate students coming to the United States. Uh, In terms of national security, uh, yes, there are dangers. Obviously, there are dangers. But for the United States, the, the centrality of that student flow is, is really amazing. And you can, you can trace the collapse of empires by students no longer go there, they go here. What we're beginning to see in 2002, we haven't quite analyzed it, but from the data I've seen all the way through 2005, is we're losing that centrality. And, uh, you know, students are not going to Korea. Student, they're All for universities in English, so the language is still English. But the universities are in Korea, Singapore, in Britain, and in Paris. Um, so, in that way, the, 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 United, the centrality of the United States might be, might be, might be uh, going down. I'm not sure when. All, it's 11:05. Should I just take a couple more questions, Caitlin? Yes. Sir. What data would you like to have access to? If have access to? Ah, all of it. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> the top top level. I would love to get MBNA's records of credit card transactions throughout the world. Uh, Not on an individual level, but simply what does the ATM network look like? Whose credit cards are going into ATM machines throughout the world? And I suspect that if you could just show one number that took into account trade, culture, tourism, uh, capital flows. It, it's that. If you could, if you could map that, um, we're actually negotiating with with someone uh, to be able to do that on a regional basis. But the data is amazing. Uh, the second one that I would love to get is intra-firm records. The problem with this data is we're treating it on a country level. Countries don't trade with one another. Companies trade with one another. Countries don't call each other. People call each other. So if we could get into GMs or Fords or Sonys or whatever, so we can see what the trade network inside a firm actually looks like, would be the, oh, don't even get, a third one. I'll just be quiet. (laughs) I want it all. Uh, I actually was offered a consulting job and I couldn't take it with a, a company that manufactures phone cards. Those phone cards, they have the data that they can show from every neighborhood where that phone was located that used that card and where they were calling. So if you want a map of migration in the United States, for example, and most of these telephone cards are used by migrants, there you go. And you can get it down to the level of a block. This block in Roslyn, Virginia, is linked to this block in Ayacucho, Peru, in a very solid way. but, you know, so if any of you have Christmas gifts on your mind, uh, you have any data sets sitting around at home, <laughs> just give me a call. Uh, should I take one more? Caitlin, or yeah. Yes. I was wondering if you had access to uh, your staff providers on um, and, and also uh, arms. Yeah, um, arms is easy. Arms is pretty much arms between the legitimate players we have, and actually you can go on the website and and get that. Um, Where we don't have it is of course arms to the level of the Ukrainian mercenaries working in Sierra Leone. We we don't have that. But you can actually sometimes trace it, what does that mean? Uh, We can sometimes trace it because if you go, there's a link from here to here to here, that makes no sense. And you can start guessing. Drug flows, that's, uh, I mean, that's the DEA has that, but they're not gonna let me have it. Uh, We actually have pretty good maps of how the the drug flows work. Uh, And we've we've got some of those, of of illegal drugs. Um, The best way of actually doing it is not by the illegal drugs because that's not gonna be counted. The best way to do that is by capital flows. Unaccounted capital flows where if you've got a, one of the things we want to do is if you've got a map of capital flows, and you can make a map of trade, let's say, or of migration, wherever you see there are links in capital flows that are not the same with trade or with migration, there is something going on there that somebody doesn't want you to know about. I mean, that's, that's the best way of triangulating. All right, well, I guess one last one, or, yes, sir. <laughs> your 202. 202. I, I beg your pardon? Oh boy, uh, we're always, because the data takes so long to process, we're at least two years behind. Um, so can I track what's going on uh, today? No. Can I tell you what the basement of what's going on today uh, is? Yeah, pretty much. Now, the best example of that is China. We way under China. Uh, you just can't help that. So you, you look for those, in a sense, you go, okay, let's remember that X has happened in the last three years. Or uh, the, the best places, we've been able to do it micro with textiles. I mean, you should see what happens to these maps after 19 two, up to 2003 with China and textiles. And the whole world basically becomes, you know, the, the, all the arrows just go to one place. And you basically see that China makes everybody's shirts, increasingly. But that's the kind of thing we can look for. I've been getting a signal we should stop. Thank you all so much.